And this is KCI in Irvine, 88.9 FM, and streaming live at kci.org. Michael Vonnen and Sui Laid. This is Tani Tenuviel, and I will be here with What Would Arwen Do with my Hobbit co-host Milo Lonsdown in just a few moments. So please stay here. This is KUCI in Irvine, the best radio station in the history of the universe. of the Anteater Kingdom on 88.9 FM KUCI in Irvine. Why do you linger here when there is no hope? There is still hope. Tempted to think there's no hope for overcoming some of the challenges of modern life? Ask an elf. Or a hobbit. Tune in Tuesdays 4 to 5 p.m. with Milo Lomsdown at your service and... Tawny Tenuvial, the resident KUCI Middle Earth elf. For What Would Arwen Do on KUCI Irvine, 88.9 FM, and streaming live on KUCI.org. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I am Tani Tenuviel, the resident KUCI Middle Earth Elf. Welcome. This is What Would Arwen Do on Every Other Week here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the best radio station in the history of Middle Earth. And with me here today is the irrepressible hobbit. Oh, good afternoon, Elf Princess. <laughs> what a week we have had. What a two weeks we have had. Indeed. Milo Lomsdown, 
at your service. Thank you very much. And I know it has been, you know, it's just life is so full of adventures. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Even more adventures. <laughs> Let me briefly say a hello to our people listening live at 88.9 FM Irvine. This is KUCI. And also to those of you listening at KUCI.org, where this fabulous radio station is streaming live 24 by 7 including this program and all programs for for many, many years, has been streaming live. And also greetings to people listening to the podcast, which was downloaded either from KUCITalk.org or from the iTunes store. It's free, of course. You can search for Arwen. That's A-R-W-E-N. Oh, my gosh. And there's wonderful things out there on the podcast archive stretching back years. Yes. And, in fact, there, just for those um, who may have missed the show two weeks ago, there is a pod, the podcast is up where we got to interview Jennifer Horseman, who is the author with her daughter, Jamie Flowers, of Please Don't Eat the Animals, uh, All the Reasons You Need to Be a Vegetarian. That was such a wonderful day. She's so delightful, and I loved her perspective on um, when, you know, when we ask, well, what would Arwen do with regards to caring for the planet and for the creatures that we share this planet with? Um, I think she really espoused a good um, a good perspective because I believe that a modern-day elf would have hold the perspective that, um, yes, there may have been a time when we needed to have animals to, to survive, but with the technology and the things we have available to us today, uh, we, can, we can indeed nourish ourselves without having to cause suffering for the animals. At least in North America and most of Europe, there's absolutely no reason. And the great thing about the book is it is filled with hard facts. I mean, it's not just a mushy, you know, uh, let's do this, you know, because it's the right thing, although there is some of that in there. Right. But there are tremendous loads of just hard factual data that's backed up with bibliographic references and footnotes. Absolutely. And and done in a way that is, you know, not bashing anybody over the head or making anyone wrong for where they are, but just... Um, information that you might want to consider in the choices uh, in choices that you make about what you choose to eat in life. So, go to KUCI Talk. That's KUCITALK dot org, and you can search for the podcast archives of this program. What would Arwen do? As well as many other wonderful public affairs programs on KUCI Irvine. Thank you, my dear Hobbit friend, and. Uh, to our listeners, which we have said hello, but I'd like to also say, um, if you are tuning in for your very first time, you may be wondering what this show is all about. Well, this is the show where we ask if a Middle Earth elf lived today in Southern California, in Irvine to be more precise, what might her life look like? And I started this show about, um, well, in June it will be six years, and you have been with me like almost two years now. Almost two years. So it was originally simply perspective from a Middle Earth elf, but now it's really more of a rounded out Middle Earth perspective of life. And we occasionally do have guests who are wizards. Ah. <laughs> We've had a <laughs> or couple hobbits wizards. Or, or, or dwarves. We had a troll, I think, in the um, waiting room one day, you said. That's right. <laughs> we did have a troll in the waiting room. So, the question, if a Middle-earth elf lived today in Southern California, what might her life look like? How would she, as a modern elf, celebrate and support the arts, music, her community, and 
and the preservation of Earth, its beauty, resources, and creatures. Some people like to ask, what would Jesus do? Which is a very good question, especially this time of the year when we have um, Easter fast approaching. But on this program, when challenges in life arise, or as the wizard Gandalf puts it, quote, questions, questions that need answering, we like to ask, what would Arwen do? Who was Arwen, you may be wondering, in J.R.R. Tolkien's Mythology of Middle-Earth, Arwen was an elf princess, the daughter of Elrond, a prince among elves and lord of Rivendell, a magical place of healing lore and wisdom, perhaps not unlike the community here at UC Irvine. Arwen was also a beloved daughter of the universe, as are all the women of this fair celestial home called Earth, or an elvish Arda. I believe that Arwen understood the principle of noblesse oblige, with great privilege comes responsibility. She embodied the archetype of a true princess of the light through her courage, wisdom, beauty, her sense of humor, and her service to others. In Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, A Guide to Middle-Earth, Colin Durias wrote, In his invented mythology of Middle-Earth, Tolkien intended that his elves were an extended metaphor of a key aspect of human nature. This, quote, elven quality in human life was a central preoccupation of Tolkien's. Elves, like dwarves, hobbits, and the like, partially represent human beings. In Tolkien's mythology, elves represent what is high and noble in humans. In particular, they represent the arts in their highest form, work done in the image of God and his created world. And I believe, and I think my co-host Milo believes, that this, quote, elven quality exists today in every living person and yearns for expression through gifts of creativity, nobility, and service to others. So, again, we say welcome, and welcome to our little adventure here on KUCI for today. And it is National Poetry Month. Milo. Oh my gosh, and there is so much poetry in the work of Tolkien. Uh, yes, and of, and of course we have um, Easter coming up, and as we are lovers both of the uh, cinematic works of Middle Earth, uh, brought to us primarily through the work of Peter Jackson and his teams of people, uh, but also through the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien and his son, and uh, and even those that uh, write other other things. Um, we both we just we just love all things Middle Earth, and so we are very excited about the Hobbit movies that will be coming out in December, hopefully December two thousand twelve. That's right. We've got about oh my gosh, we've got about oh my twelve and eight is twenty months and counting to wait <laughs> for that premiere. What and a day that will be! What a day that will be! And I mean, just it was December two thousand one. That the first movie came out, and there was so much going on that year as well. That was the year of the 9-11. And so, yeah, this, uh, and of course, you know, this year, who knows, in 2012, who knows what we have, because, you know, that, there's that whole thing about the Mayan calendar and the planets aligning. So it might be an interesting time in history again. Oh, it, it certainly will be. And so do you have some movie news for us? Well, I do have movie news and movie-related news. Mm-hmm. First of all, we should make note for our listeners that enjoyed the work of the great actor Sean Bean. He appears oh, yes. in a new series 
called Game of Thrones on home box office. Game of Thrones. He plays the hero, and he is truly heroic looking. And it's just a beautifully realized tale of sword and sorcery, witches and and horrible things and wonderful, <laughs> beautiful things. Very beautiful cinematography, wonderful opening credits. So that's something to make note of. But as far as movie news, we should remind people, I like to go to the onering.net, which is a wonderful uh, website that keeps us up to date with all of the happenings related to the books and the movies, based on Tolkien's world. And Peter Jackson has posted a first production video from the set of The Hobbit. And this video is a very meaty, meaty ten and a half minutes of wonder. So the actual URL, the uh, URL into the video is a little bit long to give here, but I will say if you go to the Mm -hmm. onering.net, they have an immediate link into that. And basically, Peter Jackson is using Facebook in a way as a blogging device to have a diary uh, occasionally updated of the progress of the movies. There's also blogs by Ian McKellen, who doesn't have any new entries in the last two weeks. However, in doing research for today's program, I found out that John Howe, the great conceptual artist Mm -hmm. who did conceptual design and artistic work on the Lord of the Rings three movies and Peter Jackson's King Kong and the first Chronicles of Narnia movie, The Lion, the Witch, Mm -hmm. and the Wardrobe. And now, of course, he's working on The Hobbit Parts 1 and 2. Did you know he is also a carpenter? I did not know that. And he actually gets a credit as a carpenter in The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Oh, wow. As well as as well as well on King Kong, Peter uh-huh. Jackson's remake. Yes. Uh, so John Howe, the reason we mentioned John Howe is he has a website, www.john-howe.com. That's mm-hmm. john-howe.com. And in there, he, about once a month, makes a blog entry. And, of course, now he's talking about things related to the new movies. Mm -hmm. But on there also, you can click on the left, there's a link called Portfolio. Oh. And he lists collections of portfolios, including drawings for The Lord of the Rings. But then there's one for The Hobbit. And so as you look at those 30 or 40 images and you see how he has drawn Smaug, the great dragon, when you see how he has drawn Bag End and he has drawn other things from The Hobbit, uh, the spiders, uh, (laughs) Mirkwood, it's just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. So um, there's uh, another little bit of... I wanted to uh, back up just a little bit to the the Peter Jackson um, video because you you emailed that to me last week and I wanted to thank you so much because I was having a very challenging week and as a dear Hobbit would do you sent it to me to lift my spirits which it did but I do have a confession to make because I'm one of those kind of elves who loves gifts and loves the prolonging of opening gifts and enjoying gifts for as long as possible um, and so what I I've only watched about two thirds of that video because I want to um, I keep watching it and then watching a little bit more and then going back and watching the beginning because there's so many 
interesting things in there. I mean, you, he, Peter Jackson actually s- takes you upstairs where the um, designers and the costume makers are working on the costumes. They, he takes you on some of the sets. There's aspects of the sets in that little video, like from pl- some places in Rivendell, that we never got to see. He said nobody's actually even seen this part in the Lord of the Rings movie. So even just that little video that I think it's about 10 minutes long has some wonderful treasures in it. It's not 10 minutes of fluff. It's 10 minutes of meat. And and I shouldn't say meat, but it's 10 minutes of solid nutrition. (laughs) No animals were harmed in the making of that video. It's 10 minutes of solid nutrition for the mind and the heart and the eyes. And and it just, I I think for me, it, um, it just reignited even more so that last... When the movies came out, I was very careful about spoilers. Of course, I didn't even know anything. In fact, I stopped reading the books because I wanted to just go ahead and enjoy the movies first because I knew that the books would be different and I could always, you know, read the books and fill in or whatever. But I didn't want to see the movies and say, oh, well, I wish they wouldn't have left out this or that. I just wanted to enjoy the movies fresh and then go back to reading the books. So, but this, this go around, I'm doing a little different. I'm, I'm actually okay with, uh, the spoilers. To me, uh, some of that, um, some of those things, like even just this video, just really ignited an excitement about where what they're going to do with these two movies. It's very exciting. So that basically is uh, the the movie news, qua movie news. But there's another thing that I so need no to mention. So no new casting or anything like that? No new casting rumors. The same rumors are still there. Okay. Basically rumored is Leonard Nimoy as the voice of Smaug. Uh Rumored is David Tennant of Doctor Who fame as Thranduil. All these rumors are still in place. And the other little elf girl that they brought in. Chuarese Ronan, the great Irish actress, young Irish actress, as Itaril, is still still not firmly confirmed. (laughs) Wonderful things to discover later on. However, you do have something... um, else to share about this uh, review of the it was on TV last week? Yes, on the Eternal Word Television Network, which is a Catholic cable TV channel Mm -hmm. on Time Warner here in Orange County, California. It's channel 167, but they they created a one-hour special hosted by Professor Joseph Pierce called The Lord, Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, A Catholic Worldview. Mm. And in there, there's two notable things. One notable thing is it depicts, it it dramatizes the talk and the walk between Tolkien and Lewis, when Mm -hmm. Lewis was still basically an atheist, Mm -hmm. and Tolkien, who had been raised Catholic, sort of brought him into Christianity, not Catholicism, but into Christianity. Mm -hmm. So that's one notable thing for those of us that love both Tolkien and, and we'll be C.S. talking Lewis. a little bit more about that later, and uh, some of the the beautiful things that came out of that relating to National Poetry Month. Right, we'll be talking about poetry later in the program. Uh, so this one hour program from EWTN called uh, "Lord of the Rings: A Catholic Worldview" it's very wonderful. Professor Pierce uh, establishes very many parallels. He sh- he sh- he shows that even though. Jesus obviously wouldn't have been depicted because the events of the Lord of the Rings are much before the Advent. It's, it's considered pre-Christian. Pre-Christian, yeah. certainly. But even no mention of God. Right. right. But he goes on to show in the collection of Tolkien's work how there are definite parallels between Morgoth and Satan. And before that, 
Melkor, the earlier name of Morgoth, and Lucifer, the earlier name of Satan, before they respectively fell. Mm -hmm. And he talks about Augustinian theology and the parasitic nature of evil, how evil is a parasite, Mm -hmm. and the linguistic clues to meaning. For instance, Sauron starts with S-A-U-R, which is the root word for lizard in ancient Greek. And of course, Tolkien was a philologist, what we would now call a linguist. Mm -hmm. And just wonderful stuff. Uh, Why does Frodo fail? We need help from God to overcome sin. Gollum is, in this view, God's miraculous intervention. Mm-hmm. And Frodo says, let us forgive him. And that is a parallel with Jesus' uh, you know, uh, commandment to love your enemies. So it's a wonderful one-hour program. I don't know if they're going to bring it out on DVD, mm-hmm. but The Lord of the Rings, A Catholic Worldview, was on EWTN. Mm-hmm. And I think that we see that even though... Um J.R. Tolkien was very strong, strongly disliked allegory as a direct correlation, but he loved metaphor, and and we see a lot of the archetypal images and and definitely in Lord of the Rings and in the Silmarillion, the Ainulindali, the Song of the Ainur, is J.R. Tolkien's creation story in which Iru, the One, is God. The uh, Ainur are the angelic beings, are the offspring of his thought, and all of the world come into come into being through music and through song and as a result of his intention and providence and the themes of the music even in the Lord of the Rings would uh, one of the scenes that I loved so much uh, you know broke my heart when uh, Boromir dies yes. and Aragorn comes and says to him be at peace you know son of Gondor it's just you you see such a picture in a sense of, of Jesus there and of course you know there is no doubt that um, Aragorn as the the king the return even the the title the return of the king you know we have the you know revisiting of some of these eternal themes of redemption and eucatastrophe and um, which um, if our listeners have are not familiar the uh, the wonderful essay by J.R. Tolkien which is in uh, the Monsters and the Critics and other essays. Uh, without originally, but is also in the um, the Tolkien reader, but his essay on fairy stories, which is a defense not only of fantasy, but also he explains in it the sense of the eucatastrophe and how the gospel, uh, in a sense, you know, J.R. Tolkien and he talked about there, it was the myth that became fact. And um, so if people are kind of interested in what you were talking about, they might want to take up and read his essay on uh, fairy stories, which was originally um, delivered to, it was, the Andrew, it was an Andrew Lang lecture. But anyway, it's, it's in here, and it's absolutely wonderful. And we will be reading some things today. Uh, oh my gosh, wonderful stuff. <laughs> relating to poetry and uh, the Passion Week and Easter coming up, because... J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis were Christians, and C.S. Lewis, uh, J.R. Tolkien was very instrumental in C.S. Lewis sorting out uh, the objections that he had in coming to faith. That's right, that's right. It was a tremendous moment, and in fact, the one-hour special from EWTN, Lord of the Rings, A Catholic Worldview, dramatizes that walk and talk they had that was so instrumental as acknowledged by C.S. Lewis himself, 
of Lewis coming to you know, believe in Christianity to becoming a Christian. I wanted to read uh, one little thing here from the C.S. Lewis Encyclopedia, um, by um, edited by Colin Durias, who also uh, uh, wrote and edited the um, uh, Guide to Middle Earth. And this is in the little uh, excerpt in the part on... Um, uh, theo- um, theology of Romance. And he says here, the imagination for C.S. Lewis is concerned with apprehending realities, even if they belong to the unseen world, rather than with grasping concepts. Imaginative invention is justifiable, justifiable in its own right. It does not have the burden of carrying didactic truths. This is why good works of imagination cannot be reduced to, quote, morals and lessons, although lessons can be derived from them. And the truer the work, the greater the lessons that can be drawn from it. In a review of Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien noted that, quote, what shows that we are reading myth, not allegory, is that there are no pointers to a specifically theological or political or psychological application. A myth points for each reader to the realm he lives in most. It is a master key. Use it on what door you like. People may ask why use fantasy to make a serious point. Because, Lewis answered, the writer wants, quote, to say that the real life of men is that of mythical and heroic quality. One can see the principle at work in Tolkien's characterization. Much that in... A realistic work would be done by, quote, character delineation, is here done simply by making the character an elf, a dwarf, or a hobbit. The imagined beings have their insides on the outside. They are visible souls. And man as a whole, man pitted against the universe, have we seen him at all till we have seen what, that he is like a hero in a fairy tale? That, J- that C.S. Lewis on commenting on J.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Right. So, we have some wonderful things. Before we go on, I would love to say hello to all of our friends on Torque. I know you are a great fan of the website Torn, which I am also a great fan of Torn. It's a great community of people who are enthusiastic and interested in the works of J.R. Tolkien and the movies and the books. I also especially love Torque, which is the OneRing.com. Right. And it's a wonderful community of people. I've met many of these people. They're, it's, they were a home for me, especially when I was looking for people who were as ecstatic about these works as I was, and I couldn't find anyone <laughs> who was quite as interested. Um, I, as I mentioned before, got to meet some people, got to meet Vanna and Guru at the gathering, which was a big group of about 1,200 of us that met for the return of the king up in Toronto. Oh, my gosh. And went to Medieval Times, which was made up like Middle Earth and had costuming things going on all day, all kinds of great fun. And there was the dancing, the dancing on the lawn at midnight. Well, this was actually when I went up to the Northwest Tolkien Society a conference up there, got to meet Peter Lyon from Weta Workshop and play hobbit trivia with him oh my god and from there drove up to guru and vanna's house up in washington and this is just before they were married they married they met on torque um but they have now since become married and this is a true elvish couple but yesterday was guru's birthday so wow happy birthday to guru we want to say a very special happy birthday to him and in true elvish fashion i would like to play uh, from YouTube, happy birthday to Guru in Elvish. So this is from uh, 
Ando Tambaro, who is has some wonderful things in Elvish, but this is happy birthday. So this is for Guru up in Washington from The Hobbit and the Elf, and happy birthday. Oops, let's see. Gosh, isn't that wonderful? I happy wish, birthday. I must learn how to sing happy birthday in Elvish. <laughs> of course, I think people would probably appreciate that <laughs> more than than my Elvish voice. However, happy birthday to Guru up in Seattle. And we are going to be getting into now our segment on poetry. Because this is passion. National Poetry Month. Indeed. And we are in Passion Week. This is Passion Week. Good Friday is in three days if you're listening to us live. Mm -hmm. Today is Tuesday, April the 19th, 2011. And for those who may be just tuning in, this is What Would Arwen Do on every other Tuesday afternoon, 4 to 5 p.m. with me, Tani Chinuvio, and my delightful Hobbit co-host, Milo Long's down at your service on KUCI Irvine. Yes, and streaming live on the internet at KUCI.org. So, for our next segment of Fun and Games for today, um, we are getting into Poetry and Poetry Month. We talked a little bit about uh, this earlier. You know, before we do this, let's get a let's have just a little bit of music, shall we? Just to kind of get us in the in the mood here for Middle Earth. We will, in fact, be hearing from the um, professor himself Ooh, reading some wonderful. of his own poetry. But let's have just a little bit of Hobbit music for just a few moments, and we will be back with you in just a few moments. This is KUCI in Irvine. you hum to the Hobbit. That is the Academy Award winning music of Howard Shore from The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, the original soundtrack. So we are going to be sharing some thoughts about Easter and the friendship that J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis shared. This is What Would Arwen Do on KCI in Irvine. This is the show where we, when things arise in life that we want to ask about, we say, what would Arwen do? And I believe if we ask about Easter and National Poetry Month and we say, well, what would Arwen do? What would she think about all of this? I think that a modern elf would most certainly be celebrating the the festivals of her time. You know, Arwen would have enjoyed the festivals of her time and she would, a modern elf would also enjoy the festivals. Uh, 
when Arwen, during the time of Arwen and the Lord of the Rings, her grandmother was Galadriel. Galadriel had actually lived in Eldamar with the Valar. She had seen the light of the two trees and, and lived among beings who were, who had come directly from the throne room of God, of Eru. So, uh, so this is a special time, and J.R. Tolkien, the creator, or at least the one who brought us Middle-earth, was, uh, was a Christian. And C.S. Lewis, who became one of the great apologists. Um, but Some who, say the greatest of the 20th century. But who was very much not so when he, they first met. So I'm going to When read, they met, C.S. Lewis was an atheist. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and perhaps even a, an, an agnostic. So I'm going to read a little bit from uh, the J.R. Tolkien, A Biography by Humphrey Carpenter. This is on the chapter on Jack, which is uh, what um, he was known by to uh, J.R. Tolkien. They called, they called, called him Jack. Uh, it says here, In Surprised by Joy, Lewis wrote that friendship with Tolkien marked the breakdown of two old prejudices. At my first coming into the world, I had been implicitly warned never to trust a papist, and at my first coming into the English faculty, explicitly, never to trust a philologist. Tolkien was both. (laughs) (laughs) Soon after the second prejudice had been overcome, the friendship moved into the area of the first. Lewis, the son of a Belfast solicitor, had been brought up as an Ulster Protestant. During adolescence, he had professed agnosticism, or rather he had discovered that for him the greatest delight was to be found not in Christianity, but in pagan mythologies. Yet already he had receded a little from this standpoint. During the middle 1920s, after taking a first class in the English school and earlier a double first in classics, and while making a precarious living as a tutor, he had arrived at what he called his, quote, new look, the belief that the Christian myth conveys as much truth as most men can comprehend. By 1926, he had moved further and had come to the conclusion that, in effect, his search for the source of what he called joy was a search for God. Soon it became apparent to him that he must accept or reject God. At this juncture, he became friends with Tolkien. Interesting how providence works. In Tolkien, he found a person of wit and intellectual verve who was nevertheless a devout Christian. During the early years of their friendship, there were many hours when Tolkien would lounge in one of Lewis's plain armchairs in the center of the big sitting room in Magdalen new buildings while Lewis, his heavy fists grasping the bowl of his pipe and his eyebrows raised behind a cloud of smoke, would pace up and down, talking or listening, suddenly swinging round and exclaiming, Distinguo! Tollers, distinguo! As the other man, similarly wreathed in pipe smoke, made too sweeping an assertion. Lewis argued, but more and more in the matter of belief, he was coming to admit that Tolkien was right. By the summer of 1929, he had come to profess theism, a simple faith in God, but he was not yet a Christian. And uh, goes on to talk about um, uh, Dyson, uh, Hugo Dyson becoming part of their group and them going for a walk on this particular e- evening. And um, he, was, he was a Christian. It says um, that um, he declared that he had to understand the purpose of these events as he later expressed it in a letter to a friend, quote, how the life and death of someone else, whoever he was, 2,000 years ago, could help us here and now, except insofar as his example could help us. 
As the night wore on, Tolkien and Dyson showed him that he was here making a totally unnecessary demand. When he encountered the idea of sacrifice in the mythology of a pagan religion, he admired it and was moved by it. Indeed, the idea of the dying and reviving deity had always touched his imagination since he had read the story of the Norse god Baldr. But from the Gospels, they said, he was requiring something more, a clear meaning beyond the myth. Could he not transfer his comparatively unquestioning appreciation of sacrifice from the myth to the true story? But, said Lewis, myths are lies, even though lies be breathed through silver. No, said Tolkien, they are not. And, indicating the great trees of Magdalen Grove as their branches bent in the wind, he struck out a different line of argument. You call a tree a tree, he said, and you think nothing more of the word. But it was not a tree until someone gave it that name. You call a star a star, and say it is just a ball of matter moving on a mathematical course. But that is merely how you see it. By so naming things and describing them, you are only inventing your own terms about them. And just as speech is invention about objects and ideas, so myth is invention about truth. We have come from God, continued Tolkien, and inevitably the myths woven by us, though they contain error, will also reflect a splintered fragment of the true light, the eternal truth that is with God. Indeed, only by myth-making, only by becoming a quote, sub-creator and inventing stories, can man aspire to the state of perfection that he knew before the fall. Our myths may be misguided, but they steer, however shakily, towards the true harbor, while materialistic progress leads only to a yawning abyss and the iron crown of the power of evil. In expounding this belief in the inherent truth of mythology, Tolkien had laid bare the center of his philosophy as a writer, the creed that is at the heart of the Silmarillion. Lewis listened as Dyson affirmed in his own way what Tolkien had said. You mean, asked Lewis, that the story of Christ is simply a true myth? A myth that works on us in the same way as the others, but a myth that really happened? In that case, he said, I begin to understand. At last the wind drove them inside and they talked in Lewis's rooms until 3 a.m. When Tolkien went home, after seeing him out into the high street, Lewis and Dyson walked up and down the cloister of new buildings, still talking until the sky grew light. Twelve days later, Lewis wrote to his friend Arthur Greaves, I have just passed on from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ, in Christianity. I will try to explain this another time. My long... Night talk with Dyson and Tolkien had a great deal to do with it. Meanwhile, Tolkien, invigilating in the examination schools, was composing a long poem, recording what he had said to Lewis. He called it Mythopoeia, the making of myths. And he wrote in his diary, Friendship with Lewis, with Lewis compensates for much, and besides giving constant pleasure and comfort has done me much good from the contact with a man at once honest, brave, intellectual a scholar, a poet, and a philosopher, and a lover, at least after a long pilgrimage, of our Lord. That from the biography of uh, Humphrey Carpenter on J.R.R. Tolkien on the friendship of J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. Fabulous. 
And, my dear Hobbit, we now have the extreme pleasure, at least I believe it's extreme pleasure, of hearing the beautiful Hobbit voice read to us, in fact, this beautiful poem, which is, in a uh, sense, it, I find it very interesting that C.S. Lewis went on to become what as many would say was the greatest apologist, and yet this poem here is an apologetic argument for the gospel. And, and one of the most beautiful I've ever read. So here it is, Mythopoeia. Philomythos to Mythomythos. You look at trees and label them just so, for trees are trees and growing is to grow. You walk the earth and tread with solemn pace one of the many minor globes of space. A star's a star, some matter in a ball compelled to courses mathematical amid the regimented cold inane where destined atoms are each moment slain. At bidding of a will to which we bend and must, but only dimly apprehend, great processes march on as time unrolls from dark beginnings to uncertain goals. And as on page or written without clue, with script and limbing packed of various hue, an endless multitude of forms appear, some grim, some frail, some beautiful, some queer, each alien, except as kin from one remote origo, gnat, man, stone, and sun. God made the petrous rocks, the arboreal trees, tellurian earth, and stellar stars, and these homunculular men who walk upon the ground with nerves that tingle touched by light and sound. The movements of the sea, the wind and boughs, green grass, the large slow oddity of cows, thunder and lightning, birds that wheel and cry, slime crawling up from mud to live and die, these each are truly registered and print the brain's contortions with a separate dint. Yet trees are not trees, until so named and seen, and never were so named, if those had been, whose speech's involuted breath unfurled, faint echo and dim picture of the world, but neither record nor a photograph, being divination, judgment, and a laugh, response of those that felt a stir within by deep monition movements that were kin to life and death of trees, of beasts, of stars." free captives undermining shadowy bars, digging the foreknown from experience, and panning the vein of spirit out of sense. Great powers they slowly brought out of themselves, and looking backward they beheld the elves that wrought on cunning forges in the mind, and light and dark on secret looms entwined. He sees no stars who does not see them first, of living silver made that sudden burst to flame like flowers beneath an ancient song, whose very echo after music long has since pursued. There is no firmament, only a void, unless a jeweled tent, myth-woven and elf-patterned, and no earth, unless the mother's womb whence all have birth. The heart of man is not compound of lies, but draws some wisdom from the only wise, and still recalls him. Though now long estranged, man is not wholly lost, nor wholly changed. Disgraced he may be, yet is not dethroned, and keeps the rags of lordship once he owned, his world dominion by creative act. Not his to worship the great artifact, man, sub-creator, the refracted light through whom is splintered from a single white to many hues, and endlessly combined in living shapes that move from mind to mind. Though all the crannies of the world we filled with elves and goblins, 
Though we dared to build gods and their houses out of dark and light, and sowed the seed of dragons, t'was our right, used or misused. The right has not decayed. We make still by the law in which we are made. Yes, wish-fulfillment dreams we spin to cheat our timid hearts and ugly fact defeat. Whence came the wish, and whence the power to dream? Or some things fair, and others ugly deem? All wishes are not idle, nor in vain. Fulfillment we devise, for pain is pain. Not for itself to be desired, but ill. Or else to strive, or to subdue the will alike were graceless. And of evil this alone is deadly certain. Evil is. Blessed are the timid hearts that evil hate, that quail in its shadow, and yet shut the gate, that seek no parley, and in guarded room, though small and bait, upon a clumsy loom weave tissues gilded by the far-off day hoped and believed in under shadow's sway. Blessed are the men of Noah's race that build their little arks, though frail and poorly filled, and steer through winds contrary towards a wraith, a rumor of a harbor guessed by faith. Blessed are the legend-makers with their rhyme of things not found within recorded time. It is not they that have forgot the night, or bid us flee to organize delight in lotus isles of economic bliss, forswearing souls to gain a Circe kiss, and counterfeit at that, machine-produced, bogus seduction of the twice-seduced. Such isles they saw afar, and ones more fair, and those that hear them yet may yet beware. They have seen death and ultimate defeat, and yet they would not in despair retreat, but oft to victory have tuned the lyre, and kindled hearts with legendary fire, illuminating now, and dark hath been, with light of suns as yet by no man seen. I would that I might with the minstrels sing, and stir the unseen with a throbbing string. I would be with the mariners of the deep, that cut their slender planks on mountains steep, and voyage upon a vague and wandering quest, for some have passed beyond the fabled west. I would with the beleaguered fools be told, that keep an inner fastness where their gold, impure and scanty, yet they loyally bring to mint, in image blurred of distant king, or in fantastic banners weave the sheen, heraldic emblems of a lord unseen. I will not walk with your progressive apes, erect and sapient. Before them gapes the dark abyss to which their progress tends, if by God's mercy progress ever ends, and does not ceaselessly arrive the same unfruitful course with changing of a name. I will not treat your dusty path and flat, denoting this and that by this and that, your world immutable, wherein no part the little maker has with maker's art. I bow not yet before the iron crown, nor cast my own small golden scepter down. In paradise, perchance, the eye may stray from gazing upon everlasting day to see the day illumined, and renew from mirrored truth the likeness of the true. Then, looking on the blessed land, twill see that all is as it is, and yet made free. Salvation changes not, nor yet destroys, garden nor gardener, children nor their toys. Evil it will not see, for evil lies not in God's picture, but in crooked eyes, not in the source, but in the malicious choice, and not in sound, but in the tuneless voice. In paradise they look no more awry, and though they make anew, they make no lie. Be sure they still will make, not being dead, and poets shall have flames upon their head, and harps whereupon 
their faultless fingers fall, there each shall choose forever and from all. What a great poem. My gosh, a great apologetic and a great, great poem. And thank you so much for reading. It's so beautiful. And it's one of those things that it's like a long, it's like a story. Um, It it's beautiful to hear with the ear, but also just to when you read it, you can take little parts of it and just kind of contemplate on them, you know, passages for a while. <laughs> it's just, it, he is, is amazing. This uh, poem, Mythopoeia, I did a little research on it today, you know, as the title of the poem by J.R. Tolkien. Um, it was created as a reaction to C.S. Lewis' statement that lies are, quote, uh, that myths were, quote, lies breathed through silver. And um, it takes a, um, it, it says also, well, it's, it's quoted in fairy stories, and, and it's mentioned by Humphrey Carpenter in the biography, but the, the poem was actually first published in its entirety in 1988, in, in the 1988 edition of Tree and Leaf. So people wanted to actually find it. I think you can also find it online. Uh, that information from Tolkien Gateway. Uh, but it, I found it interesting, too. In Wikipedia, it actually says that uh, Mythopoeia, uh, which is Greek for myth-making, is a narrative genre in modern literature and film where a fictional mythology is created by the writer of prose or other fiction. This meaning of the word mythopoeia follows its use by J.R.R. Tolkien in the 1930s. The authors in this genre integrate traditional mythological themes and archetypes into fiction. So it's kind of interesting because I think even certain stories like you know Star Wars yes. um, would fall under the genre of mythopoeia. Definitely Star Wars does absolutely definitely it does yes and uh, i saw an interesting i was able to watch an interesting um documentary uh last week with um george lucas with i think it was bill moyers on the mythology of star wars was wow yeah, yeah it was it was very cool let's hear we oh where does the time go when we're having so much fun let's play again that was uh, mythopoeia by J.R. Tolkien, read by the charming hobbit, Milo Loves Down. At your service, Elf Princess. <laughs> and let's hear a little bit of elf music. And J- first, let's hear J.R. Tolkien reciting one of his own poems. And, of course, the beautiful story of Luthien and Beren. And that is in the Fellowship of the Ring, book one. And in the book, Aragorn is sharing that with the hobbits to kind of help uh, right. them down a bit. Right. But here we have J.R.R. Tolkien with the song of Berin and Luthien, KUCI in Irvine. Standing up with his hands behind his back as if he was at school, he began to sing to an old tune. <coughs> a troll sat alone on his seat of stone and munched and mumbled a bare old bone. For many a year he gnawed it near, for me it was hard to come by, some by, come by. In a cave in the hills he dwelt alone, and me it was hard to come by. Up came John with his big boots on, says he to troll clay, what is yon? For it looks like the shin of an Uncle Jim, I should be a loin in graveyard, caveyard, paveyard. This many a year has Jim been gone. And I thought he were lying in graveyard. My lad said, troll, this bone I stole. But what be bones that lie in a hole? 
Thine uncle was dead as a lump of lead, for I found his carcass. Arky, marky, he can spare a bone for a poor old troll. He's got no use for his carcass. Said John, I don't see what the likes of thee. With her axe in leaves, she go make him free. With a leg of the shin of my father's skin, so hand the old bone over, rover, trover. Though dead he be, belongs to he, so hand the old bone over. For a couple of pins, as a troll and grins, I'll eat thee too and gnaw thy shins. A bit of fresh meat will go down sweet. There'll be a nice change from the uncle, sunkle, grunkle. I'm tired of gnawing old bones and skins. There'll be a nice change from the uncle. But just as he thought his dinner was caught, he found his hands had hold of naught. Before he could mind, John slipped behind and gave him the boot to lamb him. Warn him, darn him, a bump of the boot in the seat, John thought, would be the way to learn him. But harder than stone is the flesh and bone of a troll that sits in the hills alone. As well set your boot to the mountain's root, for the seat of a troll don't feel it, deal it, peel it. Old troll laughed, but John did groan, for his poor toes did feel it. John's leg is game since home he came, and his boots, his foot, his lasting lame. But Troll don't care, and he's still there, with a bony bone from its owner, donor, boner. Troll's old seat is still the same, with a bony bone from its owner. Wow, unbelievable. <laughs> and as Providence would have it, we I accidentally played the wrong track, but how perfect, because this was the professor um, reading the uh, Sam's Rhyme of the Troll, which Sam would have been reciting. It just shows what a great poet he was. Uh. Tolkien could switch, he could go from very epic, very heroic, very classical poetry and then on the next page, you'll have this little ditty by a hobbit. Right. As we see also in The Hobbit, uh, some of the, the the elves' songs there, when they first encounter uh, Gandalf and the dwarves, they're really silly songs. Yes, yes. So let's now hear uh, the professor with the song of Berin and Lucien. I'll tell you the tale of Tinuviel, said Strider, in brief, for it is a long tale which the end is not known. There are none now except Elrond that remember it aright as it was told of old. He was silent for some time, and then he began not to speak, but to chant softly. The leaves were long, the grass was green, the hemlock umbels tall and fair, and in the glade a light was seen of stars in shadow shimmering. Tinuviel was dancing there the, to music of a pipe unseen. The light of stars was in her hair and in her raiment glimmering. There Berin came from mountains cold, and lost he wandered under leaves, and where the elven river rolled he walked alone and sorrowing. He peered between the hemlock leaves and saw in wonder flowers of gold upon her mantle and her sleeves, and her hair like shadow following. Enchantment healed his weary feet that over hills were doomed to roam, and forth he hastened, strong and fleet, and grasped at moonbeams glistening. Through woven woods and elven homes she lightly fled on dancing feet, left him lonely still to roam the silent forest listening. He heard there off the flying sound of feet as light as linden leaves, or music welling underground in hidden hollows quavering. 
Now withered lay the hemlock sheaves, and one by one with sighing sound, whispering fell the beechen leaves in the wintry woodland wavering. He sought her ever wandering far, where leaves of years were thickly strewn, by light of moon and ray of star in frosty heavens shivering. Her mantle glinted in the moon as on a hilltop high and far she danced, and at her feet was strewn a mist of silver quivering. When winter passed she came again, and her song released the sudden spring, like rising lark and falling rain and melting water bubbling. He saw the elven flowers spring about her feet and heal again. He longed by her to dance and sing on the grass and troubling. Again she fled, but swift he came to Nuviel, to Nuviel, he called her by her elvish name, and there she halted, listening. One moment stood she, and a spell his voice laid on her. Beren came, and doom fell on to Nuviel, that in his arms lay glistening. As Beren looked into her eyes within the shadow of her hair, the trembling starlight of the skies, he saw their mirrored shimmering. Tinuviel the elven fair, immortal maiden, elven wise, about him cast her shadowy hair and arms like silver glimmering. Long was the way that fate them bore o'er stony mountains golden gray, through halls of iron and darkling door and woods of nightshade morrowless. The sundering seas between them lay, and yet at last they met once more. And long ago they passed away in the forest singing sorrowless. In oh, my gosh. Wonderful. Thank mm-hmm. you, Elf Princess. You're welcome. In the Forest, Singing Sorrowless. And that was uh, the professor reading the song of Berin and Luthien from The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. This is What Would Arwen Do? I am Tani Genuvio. And my Hobbit co-host, Milo Lonesdown, our time is up. See you in two weeks, Elf Princess. See you in two weeks. However, let's let our listeners know if they would if they would like to contact us. We would love to hear from them at All Ask you? an Elf, A-S-K-A-N-E-L-F at yahoo.com send us emails yes (laughs) and we'll be back in two weeks with more Elf and Hobbit adventures and please stay tuned coming up in just a moment the Blue and Gold Report this is KUCI in Irvine the best radio station in the history of the universe